every semester back at Pepperdine University, where we used to uh, work and live, I taught Calm 180, Principles of Public Communication and Rhetorical Analysis, to be exact. In other words, uh, Intro to Public Speaking, all right, for all of the other folks outside of academia. And I love that class for so many different reasons. And I would begin each class session with the question of the day. Uh, a question that would give you deep insight into someone's spirit, someone's, someone's heart and soul, right? Questions like uh, biggest celebrity crush. That's an important one. Right? Uh, worst thing ever eaten in the calf. Or maybe if you were any Disney character out of all the movies, which one would you be? But my favorite question, without a doubt, had to be the day where I asked, what's your most embarrassing moment? There's just something about embarrassing moments, isn't there? It just tells you a lot about a person. A lot. And because it's only appropriate to confess your own sin, uh, I'm going to go ahead and share my answer to that particular question with you this morning, and I'm actually embarrassed before I even do it. But that's okay. Here we go. Uh, let, let's see. It was my freshman year of high school. And side note, how many of your most embarrassing moments start with that exact same phrase? It was my freshman year of high school. There's just something about that grade, that year. It just is ripe for embarrassment. Um, well, as a freshman, I used to have a ton of hair. Now, that comes as a complete shock uh, to many of you, but, but stay with me now, okay? That's not the entirety of the story. And not only did I have a lot of hair, but I would slick it straight back as hard and as fast as I could. I mean, I was as gangsta as an upper middle class white male could be that lived in the suburbs. So gangster, so ghetto. Uh, but this stuff, in order to, to make it happen, I had to use certain stuff. It was LA Looks Hair Gel Level 10. Anybody remember this stuff? I'm not just talking about any, this is 10 plus. See that rating scale on the bottom? Yeah, that means something. And when you buy 10 plus, you have to like show an ID. <laughs> like, are you, are you old enough? Are you old enough to handle this stuff? So every day I would put uh, some of this stuff, which has the same chemical properties as Quickrete, I would put a big glob of it in my, in my hands, and then I would put it in my hair, and I would slick it straight back. And kids, side note, when you do that every day for 18 years, this is what happens. <laughs> so, so stay away from that stuff, okay? Okay, well, I played sports in high school as well, so every afternoon after school was over, I'd either put on a baseball cap or a football helmet. The problem is I already had one on. Right? I already had a gel dome on, and so my hat and my helmet, they actually wouldn't fit. They, they wouldn't fit well, or at least comfortably speaking. So before I put those on, every afternoon after school, I would find somewhere to rinse out my hair, and then, I would, then I'd go to practice. Okay, well, one day I'm at this stadium that I wasn't familiar with at all, and I couldn't find a sink or a shower head anywhere. And, and now I'm starting to get a little anxious and a little upset because it's crunch time. The game's about to start. The coach is kind of giving us the final orders. And I start to panic because I literally cannot get my helmet on. I can't get it. I'm about to run onto the field. And then, then I saw it. A toilet bowl. <laughs> now you talk about moral dilemma. <laughs> Dunk your head in that bowl or endure toxic chemical dripping down your forehead for the next four hours? Toilet bowl or burning sulfur on your skin? Toilet bowl or acid burning and dripping in your eyeballs? Well, you know where this story is going. I took the plunge. And right as I dunked my head in the toilet bowl, a teammate walks up. 
why are you washing your hair in the crapper? He asked. And I had nothing. I had nothing. You talk about embarrassing. I mean, that, that story for me takes the cake. But I hate to admit this, I have a lot of stories that I could have chosen from when it comes to my most embarrassing moment. There was a time I accidentally made, a fun, made fun of a kid and his dad uh, not knowing the kid was blind. That was super awkward. Uh, there was a time my prom date said she had to go to the bathroom and 20 minutes later she was on the dance floor with another guy. That was embarrassing. And then there was the whole chewing tobacco fiasco where I didn't realize you didn't chew, chew. I'll let, let you deal with that and, and figure out how that worked. I have done a lot of embarrassing things in my life. But if I'm completely honest with you, I have done things that are far worse and far more painful than all of those stories combined. See, the things I just shared with you are the things that I'm comfortable sharing with you. They're the things that made me look silly or, or feel awkward. But there are stories and memories in my past that are far worse than that. They're shameful. Things I've done that are disgraceful. See, I've hurt those who are closest to me. I have used people and loved stuff instead of the other way around. I've totally objectified women and lusted after them. I've wasted resources like my time and my money on completely worthless things. I've said things I've regretted. I've done things I'm ashamed of. And those memories of those things, they don't just fill me with some embarrassment. They fill me with an overwhelming sense of guilt. And that's the next giant that I want to talk about this morning in our series of overcoming the different giants that are standing in our way. Because I don't think I'm alone in all this. I imagine that a vast majority of us are burdened by or even imprisoned to things like guilt or shame or remorse or regret. I mean, listen to the words of those in Scripture who have faced this giant. Job 10:15. If I'm guilty, too bad for me, even if I'm innocent. I can't hold my head high because I'm filled with shame and misery. Jeremiah 20, 18, why was I ever born? My entire life has been filled with trouble, sorrow, and shame. Psalm 38, 18, for I do confess my guilt and iniquity, yet I'm filled with anxiety because of my sin. There's a lot of ways to say it, but many of us know what this feels like. We know what it feels like to stand before or below this giant, the giant of guilt, and have him overpower us. So the question is, how do we overcome him? A man entered a bar one time after buying a glass of beer or soda water, whatever your preference is, um, and he immediately, upon receiving the drink, splashed it into the bartender's face. He quickly grabbed the napkin and apologetically helped the bartender drive. I'm so, so sorry, he said. I have this weird compulsion to do that. I don't know why I do it, and I've tried to stop. I try to fight it, but I just can't seem to overcome this problem. Well, you better figure it out, the bartender said, because you could be assured I will never serve you a drink again until you can get this problem resolved. Well, several months went by, and this particular man showed up to the, the same bar again. When he asked for a beer or a soda water, depending on your preference, uh, the bartender refused. The man explained, no, no, no I, I'm better now. I, I've been seeing a psychiatrist. I've been cured of my problem. The man was adamant that everything was, was okay, so the bartender reluctantly poured him a drink and handed it to him. The man took the drink and again immediately just splashed it into the bartender's face. The bartender looked at him and said, I thought you figured this out. I thought you were better. 
he screamed. The man, laughing, said, oh, oh, I am better. I still do it. I just don't feel guilty about it anymore. See, if only overcoming guilt were that simple, if only it were a matter of just not feeling that way anymore, if only it were a matter of those feelings just going away over time, or with the help of a great psychologist or psychiatric person of some sort. I mean, it it doesn't happen that way. You see, feelings of shame and guilt and remorse and regret, they typically get worse over time, don't they? They typically get deeper and stronger, and they pull you further into themselves. They don't just go away. You don't just stop feeling guilty one day for things. The shame we feel for what we did back then, the the guilt we carry around because of that thing that we said to that one person, the regret we experienced because of that line that we crossed or keep crossing, even if those things happened a long time ago, feelings of guilt can just weigh us down. They can stay with us forever and ever. Man, they can still haunt us. They can still hurt us. See, guilt is like that giant Goliath back in 1 Samuel 17. Every day, like Goliath did on that hillside, the giant of guilt comes out, and it calls you out, and it taunts you, and it talks trash to you. It says, how could you even look at yourself? How could you even look at yourself in the mirror? How can you call yourself a Christian? How can you even act like just everything is okay right now? How can you just go about your business and move on? Do you not remember what you did? Do you not remember who you were? Do you forget who you still are? You are a liar, the giant says. Every morning he says, you are a cheat. You are an addict. You are an abuser. You are a slut. You are a fake. And everybody knows it including God. And even if nobody else does know it, well, we know for a fact that God does, and you can be assured of the fact that he is so disappointed in you. He is so frustrated by you. You are such a disgrace, the giant says. And day after day after day, those words come ringing through your head. Anybody else know those words? Anybody else ever hear that giant scream that over you? I know that I do. There's a story about a little boy who was uh, visiting his grandparents. One day he was in the backyard and he fired a stone from his slingshot and he killed grandma's pet duck. Uh, The boy panicked and so he hid the dead duck in the woodpile only to look up and see his older sister watching the whole thing. Sally said nothing but had seen it all. Well, after lunch one day, grandma says, Sally, I need you to wash the dishes. But Sally replies, oh, no, no, Uh, Johnny told me that he wants to help in the kitchen today. Then she looks over at Johnny and mouths the words, I know about the duck. (laughs) So Johnny did the dishes that day. Later, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing. Grandpa uh, grandpa said, oh, I'm so sorry, Sally can't go with you guys because she needs to help around the house. Again, Sally pipes up, oh, no, no, Johnny has volunteered to help around the house today. Again, she looks over at Johnny and mouths the words, I know about the duck. This continued for several days where Johnny did both his chores and Sally's. Well, finally, though, Johnny confessed to Grandma the entire thing, that he killed the duck and and hid it in the woodpile. And and Grandma says, well, I know that happened. I was watching, too. I saw the whole thing from the kitchen window, but I forgave you because I love you. I was just wondering how long you were going to let your guilt make you a slave to Sally. But isn't that what guilt does? It makes you a slave to itself. It, it, it 
enslaves you, it controls you, it forces you to do or not do certain things that you wouldn't otherwise. I mean, guilt can stop us from being honest or real with other people. Guilt can stop us from reaching out and getting help. Guilt can stop us from from making progress or coming to terms with the truth, which will set us free. Guilt and shame and regret and remorse can stop us from experiencing joy or, or, or peace or freedom. Guilt, it's like a ball and chain that's around your feet. And you might look good right here, but right back there is this memory. Right back there is this regret. Right back there, never just a few feet from you, is, is all that used to happen or all that used to be a part of your life. And so, yeah, you look good on the front end, but right behind you is this weight just pulling you down. And maybe the worst thing about guilt or regret or remorse is that it hinders you from being changed by grace. You see, if, you're, if your hands are shackled by, by guilt, you cannot receive grace Your hands have to be free of guilt so you can truly accept and embrace God's grace. But many of us are trying to take grace like this in little tiny increments with our hands still shackled by guilt. And this is not going to work. There are certain things in this life, if you think about it, that we know are big. We've seen pictures of them or, or we've seen them on the TV. But until you experience them firsthand, you really have no clue just how big they are. You ever had an experience like that? For me, it was the Lincoln Memorial. I knew this was a very large monument, but until I stood at his feet, literally, and looked up at them, I had no clue just how big that monument was, especially as a wee little eighth grader. For some of you, maybe that was the Redwoods in California. Anybody stood in front of a Redwood in California be like, oh, I knew you were big. I had no idea you were that big. Maybe for you, it was the Grand Canyon, right? Like, I knew this was a huge hole. I had no clue it was like that. One of my favorite examples of this is when it comes to professional athletes. We know that NBA players especially are really tall, but you just don't really understand how tall those guys are until you're standing next to them. Because the little guys on the court, we think that they're just like us. The little guys on the court are like 6'4", okay? That means the big guys on the court are uh, really, 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 really big. I was thinking the other day, if Nathan or Ryan, two of our ministers here, stood next to an NBA player in real life, it'd probably look something like this. Like, I knew you were tall, but I had no idea you were that tall. But the same dynamic of kind of misunderstanding or not fully appreciating something that happens when it comes to God's forgiveness, the forgiveness that he offers to us, and thus the freedom that is ours in Christ. See, I think that many of us, if, we, if I were to ask you, hey, is, is God's forgiveness a big deal? Or is freedom in Christ a big deal? You say, yeah, it's, it's a really big deal. And you could even talk about it or maybe share some verses with me about it. You could even sing a song about it. But I'm not sure you really get how big of a deal those things are. Because you've got to come face to face with those things. You've got to have your face almost pushed in the dirt by this giant in order to fully appreciate just how big and how good God's forgiveness and his freedom truly are. Listen to this word from Psalm 32.5. I acknowledge my sin to you, the psalmist says. I did not hide my wickedness. I said, I will confess all my transgressions to the Lord. And here's the kicker of this verse. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. You forgave the guilt of my sin. See, church, God doesn't just give you a clean slate He gives you a clear conscience. He doesn't just give you a clean slate. Like, okay, I guess my past is kind of forgiven or or washed away or whatever, but I still kind of feel really bad about it. 
He doesn't just give you a clean slate. He also died to give you a clear conscience. So he doesn't just take away your failures, the things that happened to you or that you did to somebody else. He doesn't just take away the failures. He also takes away the condemning feelings that always go along with the failures. You know what I'm talking about? When you fail, you did something with your hands or with your mouth, with your body, but then that failure tends to manifest itself in your mind or in your heart, and you feel condemned. You feel shameful, disgraceful, guilty. So God forgave me of the failure, the act, but the psalmist is saying God is also so good and so forgiving, he's able to forgive me and cleanse me of the feelings, all the negative feelings that go along with it. And it's hard for us to get this, isn't it? Like, yeah, 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 I know NBA NBA players are tall. Yeah, yeah, I get that. No, no, you have no clue how tall they are. I get that God has forgiven me. No, 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 you have no idea how enormous and how comprehensive that forgiveness truly is. And here's why. Because the giant of guilt is constantly chirping at you. He's constantly talking to you. Every morning he comes out of his cave and he yells at you things like this. Okay, maybe you're forgiven, which I highly doubt. I highly doubt that you are forgiven. Maybe that truth applies to somebody else. But even if you are forgiven, you still need to feel really bad about all the things that you were forgiven of. You need to feel really bad that you had to be forgiven in the first place. Did you know Jesus had to die on a cross to forgive you? That's how bad you were. The giant says, I want you to carry around the weight of your previous mistakes from yesteryear or yesterday. I want you to carry around those mistakes like a whoop dog. You should carry around your guilt like a, like a tail between your legs kind of animal, skittish and upset. Like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm no good. You're right, I'm no good. That's what the giant of guilt wants you to think. And this is the battle that all of us face between guilt and grace. And I think some of us are losing this battle horribly because many of you don't believe that the latter, grace, completely covers the former, the guilt. But let me share with you a story just real quick for a few minutes that proves otherwise. It's a story about an individual from the pages of Scripture who was facing the giant of guilt. And she could not overcome the giant on her own. Like many of us cannot overcome our giants. She needed God to step in and defeat the giant for her. And that's exactly what he did. And I hope that as we read this story together, your giant of guilt will fall dead as well. The story is in John 8. It'll be up on the screen for you. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down, and he taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So Jesus is teaching in the temple and a group of vindictive and agenda-driven religious leaders bring a woman that they just claim they caught in the act of adultery. And, And they throw her in front of him and the crowd that he was teaching. 
I want you to stop and think about this just for a second. Caught in the act of adultery. How do you do that? This is just something you typically like stumble across like, oops, sorry. You don't just catch someone in the act of adultery. Chances are this woman has been set up. Chances are they have been stalking her, knowing her reputation, following behind her, just waiting for her to slip up so she could become an object lesson, so they could use her like a tool, like bait for their own selfish, sinful purposes. So they grab this woman up, rip her out of the arms of her lovers. Chances are right now as she's standing in front of Jesus, she's barely clothed. She has a bed sheet wrapped around her, maybe a towel of some sort, nothing more. I imagine her hands and her hair are covering her shame-filled, tear-filled eyes. And you can imagine that in that moment, the guilt and the shame and the remorse are gripping her tighter than even the hands of all the men who have just drug her into that spot. You want to talk about regret. This woman is the poster child for it. When you look up guilt, remorse, words like that in the dictionary, uh, her picture is next to that. You see, she's broken the law. She's broken her promises. She brought disgrace to herself and her family. She's done things and become someone she never wanted to or, or imagined or intended she would be. She is nothing more now than an object lesson. She's totally exposed in front of all of these people, and her sin is out there for all the world to see. The husband whose wife finds out that he's been drinking heavily still. The teenager whose parents find out that they've been addicted to porn for years. The employer who finds out that his accountant has been taking a cut for herself. All of them know this feeling of being caught in the act. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to run. I found you out. I saw you do it. You're exposed right now for all the world to see. And I have to admit, this is one of the better traps that Jesus' uh, enemies set up for him. But I love the fact that the woman who's caught in the act doesn't catch our God off guard. I love that. She's caught in the act, but Jesus isn't caught off guard. There's a lot going on here. I don't have a ton of time to explain it all to you, but the positions of Jesus, as well as what he does, they're all very symbolic. You see, a judge would stand and, and deliver, whereas a teacher would sit with you. And so it says that he sits with the woman who's probably on her hands and knees because he's not going to judge her in that moment. It says he begins to write in the dust. Some say that he began to write out the sins of the men who brought the woman to him. Pride, apathy, judgmental spirit. Some say he's writing out the Ten Commandments. You know, thou shalt not commit adultery would be appropriate in that moment. Some suggest he's writing out another page or a passage of Scripture. Some suggest he's writing out the names of the men who brought the woman, and then he's just wiping them out because he can completely controls their destiny as well as the woman's. But you can see and feel the frustration level of these men growing in the story, can you not? Jesus kind of bends down, taking on a very humble posture next to the woman. He's writing in the dust. They're like, dude, what's your answer? Figure it out, man. What do you say that we do with this woman? She's a guilty sinner. She's deserving of judgment and death. And then from the posture with the woman of this teacher, this kind teacher who's there to love and, and instruct and help, what does he do? He stands. He takes the position of the judge. And he says to the men, by all means, go ahead and throw a stone. But you have to be without sin to do it. 
Let he who is without sin be the first to throw the stone. And then what does he do? He moves from position of judge back down to teacher, back down to counselor, comforter, and he goes back down to be with the woman in the dirt. So he stands and he tells the man, you're right, you're right, you're right. Go ahead and, and throw a stone. But you gotta be without sin to do it. What Jesus is saying here is let the sinner be judged, but not by other sinners. Let the law be carried out, but, but not by people who've broken the law. Let a ruling be made against the guilty, but not those who have broken the rules and who are just as guilty. As if Christ is saying, go ahead and stone her. You're right, she is technically deserving of death because of what she's done. But when you're done with that, I want you to go ahead and stand in her place because you deserve it too. Jesus' message to all the men and to all of us in that moment right now is this. You are in no position to be holding a rock. You are in no position to be holding a rock. But the irony of Christ's standard, the irony of his statement is thick. Let he who is without sin be the first to throw the stone. It says all the men walk away, but there is actually one man in the story who meets the righteous requirements. Who is it? It's Jesus. Let he who is without sin, that would be Jesus, be the first to throw the stone. There is one in the story who can actually do it, who has the right to stone the woman. But guess what? Instead of holding a stone, Jesus is holding her hand. Instead of lifting up a rock, Christ is lifting up her chin, her head. Instead of sentencing her, he's saving her because she's not, she's not an object lesson. She's an object of his love. You see that? She's not an object lesson. She's an object of his great love. His grace to the guilty is greater than we can ever imagine. His grace is infinitely greater than our guilt. If you don't remember anything else from this story, remember this. His grace is infinitely greater than our guilt. I'm not talking about, oh, just barely skinning your teeth like last second grace, just barely one. Oh, man, whoo, guilt was winning for a while, and then, ah. I'm talking about guilt has no place for the one who's been saved by grace. Jesus never gives us what we deserve. He gives us what we're desperate for, forgiveness. And he replaces our disgrace with his great grace. Amen, church? He replaces our disgrace with his great grace. You see, the men in the story wanted to bury her. Jesus came to bury her shame and her guilt and her remorse. Not her. Not her. And to prove this to us, I love it. All the men walk away. It says the older ones first because the older ones get it, right? They're like, oh, snap. Like, we know what he means by that. So you gray-haired guys, we need you to lead by example, all right? They drop the stone. They're like, get over here. Let's leave. Let's get out of here. It says they're left alone, Jesus and the woman. Where have all your accusers gone, he asks. Who is left to condemn you? 
And it's if Jesus wanted the woman to say it for herself. He wanted the woman to speak these words into existence like God in Genesis 1 and 2. Speak this truth into existence. No one is left to condemn you. Not a single one, she says. No one can or will ever stand against you. And then Jesus says, and neither do I. And neither do I. Now, if you go back to the story, he's standing at this point. So again, this is a judgment. This is a declaration of truth that he's making. He's not just comforting her as, as a counselor and teacher in this woman. He's not with her in the dirt anymore. They are now both standing because this is a statement, a declaration of truth. Neither do I. And you'd be hard-pressed to find three, four more words that are more powerful in the Scripture than these the God of the universe, the holy, perfect, anointed one, the God who's going to judge the living and the dead, who rules over all the earth, the one who has the right to judge you, catching a sinner in the act, saying to a sinner caught in the act, I don't condemn you. I don't accuse you. I don't denounce you. I don't blame you. I don't cast you out or push you away. I'm not mad at you. I'm not angry with you. I'm not disappointed in you. I'm not going to place a heavy burden on you. I'm not going to make a severe judgment against you. That's what the words neither do I mean. It's all of that and then some. Romans 5, 17, for the sin of one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it. And all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man. The song that Danny sang for us, we're going to sing it together as a church just a minute or two. I'm going to live this life in light of the victory. See, very different than living as a guilt-ridden, remorseful individual. I'm going to live this life in light of the victory that has been mine, that has been, been bought for me through the blood of Jesus. How much greater is God's wonderful grace, his gift of righteousness, we triumph over sin and death through Jesus Christ. So then Paul continues the argument later, Romans 8.1. So now because of that, because of grace, because of the gift, because of Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for those who belong to Jesus. I'm a pastor, but guys, I don't know how this works. I'm just glad that it does. I don't know how his grace works, but I'm just glad that it does. In Christ, through Christ, because of Christ, there is no condemnation. So stop condemning yourself and stop listening to the condemnatory words of others. There is no condemnation for you in Christ. Christ is the only one who could condemn you or who should condemn you. He's the only one who has the right to condemn you and he doesn't. So nothing and no one else ever will. You see, in Christ and through Christ and because of Christ, there's no judgment. So stop judging yourself. And stop listening to the harsh judgments of others. See, Christ is the only one who has the right to. He could and should judge you and sentence you to death. He's the only one who has that power, but he doesn't do it. So no one else ever will. No one else ever can. See, in Christ and through Christ and because of Christ, there's no room for disgrace. Your disgrace, all of it, for all the years into this moment, all of the disgrace has been replaced with his grace. And so stop listening to the giant. The giant keeps telling you, you're no good. You've done too much. Your sin is different. He can't forgive you. 
God can't stand you. He's telling you these things and you're listening to him. Don't tell me you're too far gone. Don't tell me you've done too much or seen too many things. Don't tell me your sin is worse. Don't tell me you need or deserve to feel guilty. Don't tell me you can't move past or beyond the things in your past. Don't, don't you dare tell me those things. Those are just the whispers of a giant who's scared to death because his head's about to be cut off. We're going to end this series talking about how David walks up and doesn't just kill Goliath, but he walks up to him at the end and what does it say? Takes his own sword, Goliath's own sword, and cuts his head off. See, your giant has fallen because of the cross, but he's still whispering, you still should feel really guilty. You still should feel like you're a... Mm. That's just the whispers of a dying giant. Don't listen to him anymore. Just don't listen to him anymore. So I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you've been caught in the act of adultery. I don't care if you've stuck your head in a toilet bowl. or something somewhere in between. I don't care what you've done. God's grace, his great grace, is the stone that kills the giant of guilt. Let go of the disgrace you're holding on to. Let go of that because God has something he wants to give you. And that's his great grace. I'm gonna invite Danny back up. We're gonna sing that song, Greater Things, together now that you know it. I mean, I'm sure you know all the words perfectly. But I want you to say these words with me. Third, Psalm 34, 5. Say this out loud. Uh, here we go. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. One more time. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. God, that's our prayer this morning, that we will look to you for help when it comes to our guilt and our regrets and our mistakes. Many of, many of us in this room have a very embarrassing story to tell, maybe 10 or 20 of them. But more than that, we have a very shameful story to tell of things done that hurt you and that hurt other people. And Lord, we know in part that we are forgiven of those things, but many of us are still weighed down by the shame and the guilt of those things that somehow we just let you down beyond what you're able to forgive that somehow we hurt you more than you could ever forgive us for that somehow we have to feel really bad all the time to show you that we get it but God nothing could be further from the truth it says not even a shadow of shame will be on our face and that's our prayer this morning, God, that this giant of guilt and regret and remorse for many in this room will fall dead right now in this very moment. He has been uh, overpowering people for so many years, God, making them feel like a dead dog. But Lord, we are, we are your sons and your daughters. And so we just want to have our faces raised like you raised women caught in adultery, God. Would you wipe away the tears, remove the shame, God. Not even a shadow of shame will cover our face. Instead, we will live in victory, God. Your victory. It was a gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We were at our very worst when we first received it. So nothing we could ever do from here on out would ever cause it to be ripped away from us, God. You loved us when we were your enemies. When we were deep in our sin, you loved us like that woman, God. When we were totally exposed, caught in the act. And you loved us in that moment, which means you'll love us for every moment 
moving forward, if that makes any sense at all, God, we just want to live in your great grace. So replace the disgrace that many of us feel for our pasts. Replace it with your great grace. It's not about us or what we've done. It's all about you and what you did and who you are. So help us now, God, to know that greater things are ours. We will look to you for help, and we just pray that the the shadow of shame will be completely removed from our faith. Make it so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.